0: Hi, Professor Stanley here and today we are going to talk about the sleep and wake disorders and I'm going to start by talking about how sleep for many people has become an expendable commodity in our fast-paced society and is often forfeited as people subject themselves to schedules that disrupt their normal sleep physiology. It is forfeited to meet social and vocational demands. And as this is happening, um, we do have some very real consequences of that. Sleep and sleep disorders are receiving increased attention in our research as it has been determined that it is now a key determinant of health and well-being. And so it's important that we study these and we be familiar with these different disorders, as many of our patients may come in with them. So, first of all, let's talk about the two states. There is the state of being awake and the state of being asleep. And there are different processes within the body that are involved with these two states. Now, I will say that the whole thing is driven by what we might term our circadian rhythm, which is the biochemical, physiological, and behavioral processes that occur within the human being spanning over a 24-hour period. And if you will look on page 221 of your book, you'll see kind of a diagram of the biological clock and how for many people it may work during the day where you have different times of day when you're at your premium you know, alertness and other times when you're sleepy. And although this may not be um, consistent from person to person, it may vary from one person to the next, it does tend to be more consistent than you might think and is often driven by light. So let's talk about this. Um, if you'll look under the column on slide number two, it talks about the homeostatic driver of sleep or sleep pressure. And it says that as we uh, go through our day, that we the length of our wakefulness, the physical exercise we get and the exposure to light, the more of these that we are exposed to, the faster we tend to be able to get to sleep at night. So when you're looking at, you know, people who have problems with sleep, all of these things can be factors that can help in that process. So I was trying to find a way to explain some of these processes to you. And so I looked at a site online and it was talking about how the internal clock is controlled by an area of the brain called the suprachasmic nucleus, which is located in the hypothalamus. And this is an area of the brain that is sensitive to the signals of lightness and dark. The optic nerve in your eye, of course, senses the light. And then the the SCN or suprachiasmic nucleus triggers the release of cortisol and other hormones that help to wake you up. But when darkness happens, then it sends messages to the pineal gland. And this gland triggers the release of the chemical melatonin, which makes you feel sleepy and ready for bed. Several neurotransmitter systems are responsible for sleep and wakefulness. The wakefulness neurotransmitters are dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, acetylcholine, histamine, glutamate, and hypocretin. Sleep-producing neurotransmitters include adenosine, gamma, amibutyric acid, or GABA, and galanin. Any medication that crosses the blood-brain barrier may have effects on sleep and wakefulness through modulation of these neurotransmitters. So when you kind of start to put it all together, it's important to appreciate that the neurotransmitters involved in sleep and wakefulness may kind of help you to understand some of your medications better. Like many of the medications used in psychiatry, for example, manipulate these neurotransmitter systems. For example, amphetamines, which promote wakefulness, increase the release of dopamine and norepinephrine. Caffeine, which promotes alertness, functions by blocking the sleep-promoting neurotransmitter adenosine. Patients report both difficulty sleeping and drowsiness when beginning treatment with antidepressants classified as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So once you start to understand that, it starts to make a little bit more sense on how some of these medications work and why some of the side side effects that we have actually occur. So the caffeine, for instance, promotes wakefulness by blocking the receptors to adenosine. And adenosine seems to work by slowly building up in your blood while you're awake. This makes you drowsy. And while you sleep, the chemical slowly dissipates. So it kind of helps you to understand how sleep occurs and how these medications work. The book goes into a bit more detail on the brain regions and neurotransmitters involved in this process. I did list some of them out on the slide for you, but please go ahead and read that section of your book. Okay, so now let's go ahead and get on into the stages of sleep. Sleep is a dynamic neurological process that involves complex interactions between the central nervous system and the environment. Now behaviorally, sleep is associated with low or absent motor activity, a reduced response to environmental stimuli and closed eyes neurophysiologically, sleep is categorized according to specific brainwave, brainwave patterns. And these can, of course, be measured through use of an electroencephalogram or an EEG. And so if we really want to know how somebody's sleeping or what's happening, we're going to have to do an EEG to find that out. So the first type, I will go ahead and say that there are two phases and four stages of sleep. The two phases are REM and non-REM sleep. The REM, of course, is referring to rapid eye movement that does occur. It's characterized by reduction and absence of skeletal muscle tone or muscle atonia, bursts of rapid eye movement and twitches of the face and limb, uh, reports of dreaming, autonomic nervous system variability, which remember the autonomic nervous system consists of two parts the sympathetic and the parasympathetic parts of the nervous system. And, of course, the sympathetic is the part that's responsible for the fight-or-flight response, which causes your heart rate to speed up, you know, the release of glucose these, you know, dilation of your eyes, all these things that you would need to survive, maybe an attack by a bear or something like that. And then you have the parasympathetic nervous system. And the parasympathetic nervous system is the rest and digest part. So as these fluctuations occur between the autonomic activation and deactivation, your heart rate and your rhythm are going to fluctuate. And so that's why you can have sometimes um, REM sleep-induced arrhythmias. And sometimes you might have somebody die in their sleep because of the arrhythmias that may develop now age anxiety and sleep deprivation can lead to an increase in the sympathetic tone and a blunted parasympathetic antagonism this means that you know your heart may speed up but the decelerations of the heart may diminish And I will let you know that anxiety, panic, and PTSD are also associated with the sympathetic activation. You can understand why, because, you know, there are things that maybe, you know, get you into that fight or flight mode. And they also cause a diminished heart rate variability. One other thing worth mentioning is that as the brain moves through the phases of sleep, the respirations also change. The cough reflex can be suppressed in some states and there may even be some apneic events, which we will start talking about a little bit later. REM sleep does comprise about 20 to 25 percent of total sleep time. And in normal adults, sleep usually begins with non-REM sleep and they tend to cycle four to six times throughout the night over 90 to 120 minute intervals across the sleep period. There also tends to be a distinct organization to the sleep architecture with the non-REM predominating the first half of the sleep period and the REM sleep predominating during the second half of the sleep period. The shortest REM period occurs 60 to 90 minutes after sleep onset and lasts only for several minutes. Now let's talk a little bit about the non-rapid eye movement sleep or the in It's divided into three stages and it's characterized by progressive or deeper sleep. Stage one is a brief transition between wake and sleep, compromises about two to 5% of the total. The time it takes to fall asleep, by the way, is referred to as sleep latency. During stage 1, the body temperature declines, the muscles relax, the slow rolling eye movements are common. People lose awareness of their environment but are generally easily aroused. During stage 2, which is approximately 45 to 55% of total sleep time, during this period, the heart rate and respiratory rate decline. Arousal from stage 2 requires more stimuli than stage 1, and stage 3, or N3, is known as a slow-wave sleep, or delta sleep. Slow-wave sleep is relatively short, constitutes about 13-23% to 23% of total sleep time, and is characterized by further reduction in heart rate and respiratory rate and blood pressure and response to internal stimuli. The three stages of NREM make up about 75-80% to 80% of total sleep time. And stage 3 is considered to be the restorative sleep, and it is a time of reduced sympathetic activity. I want you to know there was some contradiction between my two sources about how many stages of sleep there are within the non-REM sleep cycle. Another source said that there were stage three and four, but many times they are so similar in character, they're usually scored together on polysonography. And so in the case of that, you may actually see it referred to with non-REM sleep as either three or four stages, depending upon the source that you're looking at. So you might ask yourself so what's the big deal anyway why do we need sleep so much you know functions of sleep are somewhat still not quite totally understood but based on several theories and models um, people believe that it may include brain tissue restoration body restoration energy conservation memory reinforcement and consolidation during REM sleep Regulation of immune function, metabolism, and regulation of certain hormones and thermoregulation. Healthy immune function and all these things are thought to be linked to sleep. Mental health and sleep are also very very closely linked. For example, in depression and anxiety, um, there is often sleep disruption. That is either fragmented or prolonged. Both of those t- states can occur, and psychotic symptoms can occur when sleep is disturbed for some length of time. The mind just can't handle not having sleep. Spiritual health has also been, also been shown to be associated with sleep. With patients who have a strong sense of spiritual health, are more likely to have better sleep quality. You will also see some variation on what different sources may say is required for normal healthy adults. Some may say six to nine hours, some may say seven to eight. Um, Sleep architecture and efficiency may actually change over time. There's a small percentage of individuals defined as long sleepers who require 10 or more hours per night. And there are those that are short sleepers requiring less than five hours per night. The amount of sleep necessary to feel fully awake and be able to sustain normal levels of performance, however, is known as the basal sleep requirement. and It is variable from person to person, but there is some evidence that uh, people who are short or long sleepers have a higher incidence of mortality. And the ideal is probably between six and nine uh, nine hours a night. Um, Timing. Duration and sweet sleep quality are of close are of course age based. Adolescents may struggle with falling asleep, and older adults may tend to have more fragmented sleep during the night. Teenagers will often have a late night pattern of wakefulness and sleepiness, the difficulty maintaining wake wakefulness that may occur until late morning. So basically, they they're going to stay up late, but then in the morning they're going to feel very very sleepy until probably eleven or twelve o'clock, and this can be a problem for teenagers because of the social demands of school and things of that nature that may um, be a problem when they're very, very sleepy. Young people tend to bring their phone to bed, which may affect sleep greatly. And, you know, the, the light, they believe that the light and the type of light that comes from the cell phone may be a problem, may cause problems with sleep. And also there may be some cultural variability with sleep. Um, This may be due to cultural practices like mealtime. For example, European cultures may tend tend to eat very late at night which may mean that they stay up later because the digestion is still occurring. Or it may be related to lifestyle cultural norms. In the American people, you know, we tend to be very more early type of risers. And so, you know, even though we don't get to bed as early, we still may get up early, which may lead to kind of sleep deprivation as a cultural norm for us. Different cultures that live near the equator may take naps due to the heat during the day. And so you can see how there can be a great deal of cultural variability for sleep. One source that I was looking at in preparing the lecture was talking about how to find out what your basal sleep requirement is. And they suggest that there was a simple way to determine your basal sleep requirement. The first was to establish a routine bedtime. And then allow yourself to sleep undisturbed without an alarm for several days. And they say this is usually best accomplished during an extended period of leisure time, such as during a vacation or something like that. The average of several nights of undisturbed sleep is a good estimate of what your basal sleep requirement is, what your body needs. Many people who who are able to track this, you can find through doing this, you can find an understanding of what your requirement may be. So I thought that was interesting and, you know, may help you to deter- determine that because we are so functioning on schedules in our society that it may be difficult for you to know what it is that you actually need. Now, when they do believe that a person has a problem with sleep, there is something that can be done called a sleep study. You might also hear this referred to as, let me see the name for it here, a polysomnography. It's the most common sleep test. It's used to diagnose and evaluate patients with sleep-related breathing problems and nocturnal sleep disorders. It usually involves one or two nights of sleep in a lab with electrodes and monitors placed on your head on your chest and on your legs to record your brain waves, to record your eye movements, muscle tone, you know, heart rate and breathing and all those sorts of things. It does measure the electrical activity in your brain, Um, you know, eye and jaw movements, uh, nasal airflow, all these different things. You can see a list of them on my slide. And it helps to determine the continuity of sleep, which includes latency, that means how long it takes to get to sleep, the number of minutes awake, the number of awakenings during the night, and your sleep efficiency based upon a formula also helps to determine the sleep architecture, that is how you move through the different phases and stages of sleep, and sleep disorder breathing that may be occurring. For some people, especially with medications, there may be a decreased drive to breathe. For other people, they may have obstructive airways, and these can cause quite a bit of problems. So if you'll go ahead and advance with me to the next slide, we're going to start by talking about narcolepsy. Now, narcolepsy is actually pretty rare. It's only thought to affect about 0.05% of the population, and it tends to begin in young adulthood. People who experience narcolepsy may also experience something called cataplexy, which is a bilateral loss of muscle tone while conscious. This is often triggered by strong emotions and may last for several minutes. Recovery, though, is usually immediate and complete. Similar to REM paralysis, um, you know how you have that atonia that occurs during REM sleep. It's similar to that type of paralysis, only this is occurring while the person is actually awake. Some people will have one to two episodes of this in their lifetime. Others may have as much as 20 per day. Other symptoms of narcolepsy may be hypnagogic hallucinations, which are false AV and tactile hallucinations, so seeing or hearing or, you know, feeling things as they move from wakefulness to sleep, and sleep paralysis, which is an inability to speak during the transition from sleep to wakefulness, may also occur. They can also have disturbed nighttime sleep with multiple awakenings during the night and memory lapses. They will feel, feel, or they tend to feel, initially rested when awakening but easily tire within two to three hours. And measuring hypocretin, which is a neuropeptide that regulates arousal, can help to diagnose narcolepsy. Treatment for narcolepsy may include naps during the daytime, exercise, diet, um, also stimulants such as Provigil, New Vigil. Amphetamine and Xyram, which is a depressant for daytime sleepiness, may also be helpful for treatment of narcolepsy. Now, I want to mention that, of course, with all of your medications, you need to be aware of side effects. And I wanted to give you an example with Provigil in particular, because Provigil would have the normal side effects that you might experience with lots of different medications, you know, nausea, vomiting, all of those sorts of things that might occur but there is a very rare syndrome that can occur with provigil and um, some other psychiatric medications as well so i might as well mention it here and that is known as stephen johnson syndrome and this is a severe skin reaction that can occur with provigil and with lamotrigine lamictal um, and some other medications as well and in the case of stephen johnson syndrome it it turns out that what happens is it's going to usually start with like a fever, a sore throat and some fatigue. You can see how that this could easily be misdiagnosed as something else. But then patients tend to start experiencing a burning pain in their skin and ulcers and other lesions begin to appear in the mucous membrane and you know obviously the mouth starts and then the genital and the anus and then It can spread from there and you can wind up having a rash of round lesions about an inch across in the face, trunk, arms, and legs. And basically can cause kind of like a sloughing off of the skin and you can get infections and sepsis and all sorts of things that can occur. The skin usually regrows over the course of two or three weeks. Um, but complete recovery from this can take months, and overall, the risk of death if you do have Steven Johnson syndrome is between 5 and 10 percent. Now, I will mention this is a rare intera- reaction that occurs, but this is why it's important with all of these medications to know what some of the side effects are that can occur with that and be watching for them as a the nurse for this patient. Now let's go on and look at insomnia we probably all are familiar and have experienced insomnia at one point or another in our life and this is characterized by dissatisfaction with the quality or quantity of the sleep that we are getting and it is the most common of sleep disorders and may affect up to 45 percent of adults females are more frequently affected than males are um, it is characterized again by difficulty sleeping with either with sleep and initiation, the duration, or the quality of sleep, despite adequate time and opportunity for sleep. It can significantly impair the quality of life of sufferers. There are different diagnoses for the different type of insomnia. There is both mild, moderate, and severe. If you look at the definition, mild is almost nightly um, complaint of insufficient sleep and not feeling rested with little or no impairment in social or occupation functioning. Moderate it means that you're going to have mild to moderate impairment of social or occupational functioning. And severe is severe impairment of social or o- occupational functioning. So basically the degree is diagnosed based upon how much of a problem there is with your functioning that occurs. It can, of course, be precipitated by stressors such as, you know, the birth of a child obviously is a depriver of sleep. The death of a loved one, the loss of a job um, may result from anxiety or worry in these cases, or it can occur from medical conditions as well that may um, cause problems with sleep. Medications, such as beta blockers, and we've already talked about caffeine, um, nicotine, can create a problem with insomnia. When insomnia occurs, it can be worsened by poor adaptations. And this is where people are doing things other than what they should be doing in bed. So say, for instance, they have insomnia, and they get up and they watch TV in bed or pay their bills or whatever, they may have more problems sleeping because now they have associated the bed with an activity other than sleep. So treatment tends to focus on these poor adaptation behaviors to reassociate the bed with only sleep. And there's a lot of talk about um, sleep hygiene in individuals. And so it's really important that we focus on our sleep hygiene if we are having a problem with insomnia and that we create good sleep routines. And I'm going to try to post out... um, some sort of assessment for sleep hygiene on our uh, like list of things for the week. So hopefully I'll be able to find one that's good and get it out there for you. So you can start thinking about the habits that you have and exploring patients' habits as well so that you can help your patients with their sleep hygiene. Okay, let's move to the next slide, which is on circadian rhythm disorders. This is ongoing or recurrent disturbances due to alteration or disalignment between the rhythm of an individual and their physical environment or work schedule. So for instance, I am very much a circadian rhythm person where I am awake in the mornings. My best time of day is about 11 o'clock. I get kind of sleepy around 4. I wake back up around 5 or 6 and I'm sleepy again around 9. And so that's my circadian rhythm. Now, if I do choose to work a job where I am on the night shift, I would find that very difficult to adjust to. And I have found that personally, I cannot do night shifts for that reason. For people with circadian rhythm disorders, you may see excessive sleepiness or insomnia that may occur. So like, for example, with my own circadian rhythm, I find it difficult to sleep during the day, even if I have stayed up all night. And for people with circadian rhythm disorders, this may cause severe impairment in functioning. Now, there are some certain types of um, circadian rhythm disorders, such as delayed sleep phase type, which is a delay of two hours between the desired time of sleep and the actual sleep, which results in a delay in waking. There is advanced sleep phase type, where sleep begins several hours earlier and ends several hours earlier than desired, This problem is thought to affect about 1% of middle-aged adults and becomes more common with age. There is a regular sleep-wake type where sleep is sporadic and fragmented and the longest sleep period lasts about 4 hours and tends to occur between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. And This can be associated with brain disorders like Alzheimer's and disruptive environments such as hospitals. There's a non-24-hour sleep-wake type, which is characterized by a mismatch of the 24-hour environment and the person's internal clock. Sleep tends to occur late, later and later, eventually resulting in daytime sleeping. This problem is rare in people who have you know, their eyesight, but can be more of a problem for blind individuals. But medication can be taken to uh, help with that. And then there's the shift work type, which is working outside of the normal wake hours, and it results in excessive sleepiness, or at work and impaired sleep at home. This occurs in about 10% of night shift workers. This is something that I tend to have. And if you look at some of the circadian rhythm disorders consequences, people who work the night shift or they get um, they tend to get two hours less of sleep per night than normal individuals. And they have a higher rate of moving vehicle accidents, GI and cardiac disorders, insomnia, and excessive sleepiness during the time that they're supposed to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. And this is often due to several factors. For example, a lot of our social obligations may occur during the day. You may be running kids to school or have doctor's appointments, or um, different biological influences, including you know going against your own circadian rhythm. Um, it's called the biurnal circadian rhythm that primes the body to sleep at night. Um, so, in the case of night shift workers, they may have very difficult problems with sleep. I can tell you personally that I had worked a night shift at Children's Hospital when I was working the NICU there, and I was on my way home to Norman, and I pulled up to a stoplight in Norman and was almost home, and I actually fell asleep during the time it took for me to stop at that light and wait the minute or so for the light to change. And so during that time, I slid into the car in front of me because I was asleep at the wheel. That was when I decided that I no longer needed to be working night shifts because it was too dangerous for me to do so. Now I will mention, I didn't make a slide on this, but there's also a nightmare disorder which is characterized by long, frightening dreams, which tend to awaken people and make them scared when they awaken. It can begin in preschool and tends to increase until males reach about the age of 13, and for females, it tends to increase until about the age of 29, and about 6% of adults have monthly nightmares. The nightmares almost always occur during REM sleep, and the nightmare disorder can be diagnosed with repeated, repeated occurrences of extremely unsettled dreams that are remembered well upon awakening. Risk factors for nightmares include past adverse events. We'll frequently see patients with uh, a history of trauma who do have nightmares. Sleep problems and a familial disposition for sleep disturbances can also be predisposing factors. I will tell you there are some medications that we do use to treat this at night. Uh, minipress for instance, which is a Prazosin, which is a blood pressure medication, can help with nightmares and um, our patients do tend to have these a lot on the adult psychiatric unit because of their histories of trauma. There is another disorder called rapid eye movement sleep disorder which is characterized by elaborate motor activity that is associated with dreaming and these patients are actually acting out their dreams and for people that have this it is pretty rare it's about 0.5 percent of the general population it is most frequently seen in elderly men It can also be the beginnings of some neurological pathology, such as Parkinson's disease. Certain medications, such as SSRIs or SNRIs, can induce or exacerbate episodes. And diagnosis determined by clinical evaluation and polysonography and video recording. Treatment focuses on patient and sleep partner safety. Placing the mattress on the floor is sometimes necessary to prevent injury, um, things of that nature. Medication-wise, the use of an intermediate-acting benzodiazepine can be helpful, especially in cases where there is a severe disruption to the sleep of the partner and there are a lot of concerns about safety. Restless leg syndrome can also be something that causes problems with sleep, and it is a sensory and movement disorder that is characterized by an uncomfortable sensation in the leg. Um, occasionally, the arms and trunk are affected as well. Um, females tend to be affected by this problem more than men, and most of this gender difference is due to the increased risk of restless leg syndrome in pregnancy. And Symptoms begin or worsen during periods of inactivity and are relieved or reduced by physical activity, such as walking, stretching, or flexing. Symptoms are worse in the evening and at bedtime and can have a significant impact on the individual's ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. The cause of this syndrome is unknown, but evidence does suggest that it may be related to the dysfunction of the brain's basal ganglia circuits that use the neurotransmitter dopamine. So there is likely to be a strong genetic component to this, especially when seen in individuals who are under 40 years old. Iron deficiency is also associated somewhat with restless leg syndrome, and diagnosis can be determined by clinical evaluation. Um, As far as Treatment, many dopamine receptor agonists are FDA approved for the treatment of restless leg syndrome and examples of this may be um, Requip, Mirapex, NeuroPro. Unfortunately, long-term use of these drugs can lead to augmentation or worsening of the symptoms. Gabapentin um, in Carbil or Horizont is an anticonvulsant, and it may help as well. Iron deficiency are, of course, treated with using iron supp- supplements, and levodopa is used off-label for intermittent restless leg syndrome. The FDA recently rep- approved a non-pharmacological treatment. It's a pad called Relaxus that works by promoting counter-stimulation of the legs in the form of vibration that slowly tapers off throughout the night. Individuals who've had a de- deep thing. Blech. Deep vein thrombosis, though, within the past six months, should not be using this type of treatment. So, anyway, there are some ideas for you on how they may treat restless leg syndrome. It is also worth mentioning, and I think I've already hinted to this when talking about caffeine, that a substance induced sleep disorder can also occur. And this can happen from alcohol, nicotine, and caffeine. It's interesting to me because, you know, we uh, frequently will have patches that we place on our psychiatric patients to help with the nicotine. And as nicotine levels decline during the night, patients may wake in response to mild withdrawal symptoms. But they should also be reminded to remove their nicotine patch at night because I've had several patients that have complained that the nicotine patches give them very vivid dreams and they talk about how crazy their sleep was. And then I say, did you wear your patch to bed? And they say, yes, I did. And I'm like, take it off tonight and see if that helps. And it almost always helps. Alcohol, despite the fact that it um, is, of course, somewhat of a sleep inducer, it does interfere with uh, sleep in the middle of the night and is responsible for middle-of-the-night awakenings with a difficulty in returning to sleep. And we already talked about how caffeine blocks the neurotransmitter adenosine, which promotes, promotes um, wakefulness, and it increases sleep latency, reducing slow-wave sleep, and acts as a diuretic also, which can cause middle-of-the-night awakening for urination. So there's how that can occur. Now, I wanted to park a little bit on slide number, I believe it's 13, which is breathing related, and it talks about obstructive sleep apnea. Nurses now in all areas should be screening for obstructive sleep apnea. We do use frequent screenings for this. Some of the things that increase your risk are being male, being over 50 years old, um, excessive obesity, you know, weight, excessive weight, a body mass index above like 27%, I think. Maybe lower than that. I could be wrong. But anyway, um, those things can actually show um, patients who are going to be more at risk for obstructive sleep apnea. Other things that you measure might be neck circumference, um, whether or not they snore, whether or not they frequently feel tired during the daytime. All of these are assessment criteria for that. They say that as much as between 2 and 15% of adults may suffer from the presence, a prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea where... Um, They do have problems with that. And it's characterized by recurrent absence of breath for five or more times per hour, accompanied by nocturnal breathing problems, such as snoring or breathing pauses. And here again, that daytime sleepiness and fatigue we already talked about. There's another type of sleep apnea called central sleep apnea, which is the repeated repeated absence of breath with five or more central apnea events per hour. And it's due to temporary loss of ventilatory effort. Unlike obstructive sleep apnea, this is characterized by variable respiratory effort without any evidence of any kind of airway obstruction. So patients with central sleep sleep apnea may demonstrate a pattern of chain stokes breathing. Um, Frequently, it's abusers of opioids who may experience this type of sleep apnea. And that's related to a decrease in the respiratory drive. Another thing that may occur is sleep-related hypoventilation. It is diagnosed when um, there are episodes of decreased respiration coupled with elevated CO2 levels. Sleep-related hypoventilation is graded by severity depending upon the degree of hypoxemia that occurs and hypercarbia that occurs during sleep and the end organ organ impairment such as um, right-sided heart failure. Anyway, so this can be a very severe problem, as you can imagine. The one thing that can happen with all of these is that it can lead to different factors of physiology, such as hypertension, obesity, anxiety, depression, and impaired functioning. So all of these things can result as a development from sleep-related disorders that are breathing-related. Excessive daytime sleepiness, which is an inability to maintain wakefulness during the day, can also be a problem of this. It is worth mentioning at this point, of course, that one of the disorders of wakefulness known as hypersomnolence disorder, which is characterized by excessive daytime sleepiness, despite a main sleep period of at least seven hours, can be partially related to these types of sleep apneas or, you know, breathing related disorders that occur during the night. Associated symptoms of hypersomnolence disorder would be lack of motivation and energy, decreased attention, and decreased cognitive performance and depressive symptoms. Treatment for it is primarily stimulant therapy and naps, and of course, diagnosis of any of these um, sleep-related, breathing-related disorders. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into some of the pharmacology of medications that are used to treat insomnia. A lot of people will treat their problems with over the counter drugs, drugs such as diphenhydramine or alcohol, and because of the adverse effects of these agents, they should not be used to treat sleep disturbances on a long term basis. Prescription made medications used for treatment of insomnia may include benzodiazepines. Let's start with there. So, some of the benzodiazepines you may see would be Prozom. Um, Dalmain, Halcyon, Restoril. You may also see um, low doses of Clonopin and Adivan used for nighttime sleepiness um, to induce sleep at night. I will tell you that there is some problem in the state of Oklahoma because if you are on a benzodiazepine, you cannot be on an opioid on a prescription basis because of the fact that. They have regulated these two drugs being used together, and they are monitored on your PMP. So if you have somebody who needs a sleep aid, then if they're in a car accident or something, they cannot receive opioids on um, a longer-term basis. I'm not sure if they'll fill it in the short-term even in the state of Oklahoma. It should be used with great caution in patients with um, a history of suicidal ideation or addiction because obviously these can be very different addictive substances and could be something that would be a very easy to overdose on medication. When you withdraw some of these medications, if you do so suddenly, you can have seizures that will actually um, develop. Probably not in people who are using it as a one-time night Time sort of thing but there is a very high addiction risk with these medications and it should be used judiciously in older adults especially because of the impaired coordination that can occur and the dizziness that can occur because it could present a very high fall risk for individuals that are in this um, age group. Commonly you may see antidepressants of some sort used also as sleep-inducing agents The most common being Trazodone. I rarely have seen Trazodone used for anything other than uh, sleep. I don't think I've ever seen a patient that was on it for another purpose and it can be a pretty effective medication for that purpose. You should use it with caution with patients who are uh, bipolar or have a history of suicidal tendencies because like any um, antidepressant we can of course have an increase in suicidal ideation initially. You have to monitor blood pressure, um, look for tachycardia, bradycardia, things of that nature, and orthostatic hypotension in older adults, because here again, it could be a fall problem. There is some complaint I've had with patients that the trazodone helps to induce sleep, but does not necessarily keep them asleep, as well as maybe some other medications like some of the benzodiazepines might. Another medication that is an antidepressant that might be used for sleep is mutazepine or Remron. And I would encourage you to look at the side effects and the dosing and all of that of the different antidepressants such as this one in your book. Um, there are some other ones listed as well such as Elavil and um, nortriptyline. I also wanted to mention that there are some antipsychotics that can be very helpful for sleep. For example, and I will tell you that most physicians who are not psychiatrists will not actually prescribe this for sleep because they're very uncomfortable with them, but seroquil and um, also... I'm trying to think of the name of it, Zyprexa can be highly effective for sleep. Zyprexa, for instance, at 2.5 milligrams is a very low dose, and if somebody takes it in at you know at night, then it can help them to induce a deeper level of sleep than they might otherwise be able to achieve. So, whereas trazodone and some of these others tend to induce sleep, they don't necessarily keep them sleep. But with the um, Zyprexa, if you take the 2.5 milligram dose, it can actually get you into that deeper phase of sleep and keep you asleep for longer. Now, Zyprexa is not necessarily something that you would want a non-psychotic patient to be on long-term, but when used in the short-term for about two or three months to get a good sleep pattern established, they can be a highly effective type of sleep aid. Now, of course, you know, the long term effects of antipsychotics can be that you can develop um, problems with, uh, you know, diabetes or problems with your hyperlipidemia. But if you're taking them in the short term for only two to three months, these side effects should not be as problematic and can be a very effective drug for that purpose. It is also worth mentioning that there are several other non barbiturate hypnotics such as Ambien or Lunasta or Sonata. And these medications all have their different uh, profiles, but I will tell you that for all of these, warn the patients of the potential risk for hazardous activities such as walking, cooking, eating during sleep. I actually had a friend who's a physician who was on the sailboat with his son, and he said, I'm going to go take my, I believe it was Ambien," and he went down in the bow of the boat, and he went to sleep and he came up about 30 minutes later and he said, hey, safety check. And he dove over the side of the boat into the water while well, his son being a you know experienced boatman, you know wheeled the boat around and fished his father out of the water. And the next morning, my friend that's a physician woke up and said to his son, how did I get wet? He actually dove off the boat in the middle of the night with no knowledge of it because of taking the medication. And so there can be some incidents of these things that can occur. Um, and so you kind of have to also be you know, aware of patients with respiratory conditions too because it can depress the respiratory drive. And so there are some things that you might want to think about when you have these these medications. Additionally, you have to really educate patients to avoid using alcohol while taking these medications and very much stress this point. I did have a patient that came in. It was a suspected overdose, but it turned out that they had been using alcohol with their um, Ambien, and that was quite problematic and made it look like they were overdosing because of the respiratory depression that ensued. Now we already talked about how you're going to be conducting an assessment for obstructive sleep apnea typically um, on epic when a patient admits to a hospital facility but there are other assessments that you can do as well you can be asking people about you know whether or not they have trouble falling asleep how many hours a night they sleep do they feel rested after sleeping do they suffer from excessive daytime sleepiness do they snore all these things may be important in helping to find out you know, what sleep problems are and whether or not a patient is satisfied with their sleep routine. You can also teach your patients about good sleep hygiene and work with them on establishing a routine that is appropriate and that helps them to fall asleep better and faster. There are some sleep hygiene guidelines posted on chapter 12, um, table 12-4 on page 235 of your book that you can look at. Alright, this concludes the sleep lecture, and I hope that uh, it's helpful to you. If you have any questions, please come see me. And if I don't know it, we can certainly look it up. Take the time to be a responsible nurse and learn about some of these really common sleep medications and the side effects that they have. Again, they are found in your book on page 230 and 231. Especially know about Ambien, um, Trazodone, um, Remron, Seroquel and um, the benzodiazepines, because these will really help you when you have patients that you're giving these medications too. Again, thank you for listening.